Thank you, Dan. Morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles there, you might want to open up to uh, John chapter 11. That's a passage we're going to be looking through this morning. It's a passage you all know really well, but we're looking through a slightly different lens this morning. Um, I'm going to, I'm continuing, I can't see, yep, the problematic series again. Last week we looked at rest. This week I want to look at hope because, um, you know, it's, it's fairly clear throughout the scriptures that, that Jesus calls us to be people of hope. The problem with that is that sometimes being hopeful seems like a really foolish thing to do, doesn't it? Um, being, you know, and that's not just for the pessimists amongst us. Uh, even optimists at times find that being hopeful can just seem like a really foolish thing to do because nothing ever really seems to change. And so I wanted to talk about that this morning, I think, because uh, it's a very live issue for me and I think it's probably a very live issue for many of us here. Um, you know in life how you have these kind of defining moments. Um, I had one when I was uh, probably about seven or eight and um, I know I don't look like this could be true but I grew up at the time before colour television. Um, and, and I remember when colour television came out, um, some people we knew got one. And of course we just had an old black and white TV and circumstances sort of converged that I needed to be around their place one night because my parents were away uh, doing something else. And for the first time in my life, I saw the $6 million man in colour and Steve Austin had a red tracksuit. And that's that, that image is indelibly etched on my mind. And I know some of you younger people are there like, you know, Grandpa, what, you know, whoopee-doo, you know. But you, you have to have grown up in a black and white world to appreciate seeing colour television for the first time. It was mind-blowing. Well, the saints be praised. Our black and white television blew up not long after. And I remember staying awake at night thinking how good it was going to be to watch all my favourite shows in colour television. The Sullivans, Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, you know, all the good shows, all right? Prisoner. <laughs> you can watch Wentworth now, but uh, anyway. Um, and I remember mum and dad telling me they bought the new telly. And they told me, but it wasn't a black, it, it was a black and white telly. And I thought, yeah, yeah, right, you know, uh, under promise, over deliver, that's what's going on here, you know what I mean? They're, they're, just, they're just waiting to freak me out. Well, the day came, the television came, and it was a black and white television. And I remember making a vow to myself at that point that I would never hope for anything again. <laughs> and so my mantra in life, from that point on, I'm giving you an insight into my psyche now, was it give up all hope now and avoid disappointment later? Yeah, it's, good, it's a good system to live by, isn't it? Because you're never disappointed if you never get your hopes up. And I know that's kind of a really silly example. Does someone need to get that? Okay. Thank you for the musical accompaniment. Appreciate it. He just trying to lift the mood. <laughs> Anyway, I know it seems like a silly example, but there's a, kind of, there's a kind of truth in that that I think is worth taking on because 
as I reflect on my own sort of life, there have been some significant things in my life that have um, reduced my capacity to hope for things because of the way things have played out. You know, I've, I've prayed for people and they haven't got better and, in fact, they've died, all that sort of stuff. But, but when I've thought about it, what, what I've realised is it's, it's not often the big one-off catastrophic things that reduce my capacity and willingness to go into hope. It's, it's a multitude of things over a period of time that just wear me down. You know what I'm talking about? Where, you know, kind of, you just have so many disappointments that after a while you start to get a little bit sceptical and a little bit cynical and start to think, what's the point in hoping for a different outcome now? Because guess what? I guess I just consistently seem to be let down. So we all know what it's like to be disappointed and we all know what it's like to struggle with hope. You know, we invest in a relationship and it turns sour. We pour, out, we pour everything we've got into pursuing a dream or a goal and it doesn't turn out. We pray for someone or for some people and those prayers don't get answered either in the way or the time that we would hope they would, they would be. And hope is one of those things, you know, when, it's, when it pays off, it's absolutely flipping amazing. But if it doesn't, it can be absolutely devastating. The Bible actually says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, you know. And there's this sense that that when hope is, is like on the other side of the horizon all the time, um, it, it kind of gets to us after a little while. I mean, the upside of that, of course, is when there's no definitive answer in that, hope still lives, you know. There's always the possibility that that could come off. But, but while it's always out there over the horizon, the Bible tells us we get a little bit heartsick. And that's bad enough, but, but um, dashed hopes... You know, that's, a, that's another category altogether. That's where we start to get left with a bit of a bitter taste in our mouth and a reluctance to kind of go there again. Sometimes it just seems foolish to hope and sometimes it's impossible to believe that things can be different. And that spills over into our relationship with God. And what we need to understand when we're talking about hope, that we have a very particular shaped hope, you know. We're just, this isn't, when I'm talking just about blind optimism, I'm not talking about hoping in hope. Our hope is based in something or in someone. It is based in the nature and character of God. Uh, and undergirding any expectation that I may have of anything being different or better for the future in my life and those I love in the church and so on and so on and so on is, is, based, is predicated on the idea that, that in my life is this God um, for whom nothing is impossible and who is good and kind and loving and for me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like that's the shape my hope takes. You know, it's not, it's not this kind of amorphous thing. It is based on the fact that I have a good, kind, loving God for whom nothing is impossible. So when I expect things, that's what I'm putting my hope in, that that God would actually turn up to the party and do that stuff. I mean, this is the substance. You know, Hebrews, 1, uh, Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. You know, my, my hope has substance. It is faith in this very particular type of God. But here's the rub. Sometimes, there are lots of times where my hopes and my hopes in what that God would accomplish and my, what that hopes, what that God would do simply don't materialise. Sometimes quite the opposite. Somewhere, sometimes he's nowhere to be found, nowhere to be seen and things just get away from me completely. Who knows what I'm talking about there? Okay, when that sort of stuff happens. Then, so, what do we do when that happens? What sort of posture are we going to adopt when that happens in our life? How does that actually affect us? I want to look at this story from John 11, 1 to 44. Again, it's a story you all know really well, the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. But I'm looking at it particularly this morning 
through the lens of hope, because I think it actually has a lot to say about that. So we'll just go through it blow by blow. Um, some bits I'll speed up, some bits I'll slow down. But we'll go through this, and we're going to look at this story of Lazarus. And, it, and the whole idea being that here's this situation where people rightly concluded that, that Jesus, um, who was very close to these people and on tap most of the time for them, could very well have done something in a situation, but didn't. He didn't. He didn't do it in the time that was necessary and there was a lot of pain and anguish, but there was a point to it as well. So what's the sort of posture that we adopt when the God that we know could do something in the time that we want doesn't do it? What's the sort of posture we're going to do? How are we going to navigate that in the meantime? So verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Martha, oh sorry, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. I love that last bit, the one you love is sick. Did anyone ever go to school, anyone remember at school when they were at school, teacher's pets? Yeah? Was anyone here a teacher's pet? Confess. Okay, who was the teacher's pet? Who we got? Oh, you pathetic. Okay. You crawlers, okay? Teacher's pet. I just, just from someone who was never a teacher's pet, we hated you people. All right? Just, just leave it, letting it out there, okay? Teacher's pet. You always get preferential treatment, favourite treatment. What about in the family? Like, who was a mummy's boy or a daddy's girl? You know what I mean? You always got the preferential treatment, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. So it kind of begs the question, does God have favourites? Now, I know my wife and our children's pastor, Natalie Turley, believe that he does, and it's them. Um, they've, you know, that's been established for a long time, that they are, in fact, um, God's favourites, okay? So, it is true, it is true, okay? But the, why, why I'm raising this, you know, and, and that John makes a point of, of making sure that we understand the one whom you love, Jesus, is sick, is it because sometimes I think in our mind, in, in terms of trying to understand the way God works, you know, um, th- what will increase our chances of God perhaps spr- responding in the way we want him to, in the time that we want him to, and so on and so on like that, um, that somehow that God is probably guilty of preferential treatment sometimes too, that God in, does in fact have his favourites. That there are some people that God likes more than others and when they pray for something, it happens. And, you know, like I went to college with a guy, seriously. Like, I've never seen anything like it. It's like the guy had the Midas touch, you know what I mean? Like we buy a combi for $3,000 and it's been around the, you know, it's, it blows up fundamentally, that's what happens. He buys a combi for the same price, but it's been kept in a garage and not driven since 1969 and still has the plastic on the seats. You know what I mean? Like this was this guy, this was, this was like, oh, you know, I just got my pilot's licence, oh, I needed a job, so, you know, 10 people offered me a job. And it's like, you would sit there and you go, obviously God loves him more than he loves me. You know, obviously, because everything just seems to come to this guy. So there's people, but, but you know, like there is this mystery involved when we're, we're praying for God to do something and we're, we're hoping for God to do something. We kind of want to understand how it works. And a large part of that often can be we have this idea that God has um, preferential treatment for people because, he's their fa- because they are the favourite. But I've been around long enough now to hear just about every harebrained scheme there is for understanding how it is we can actually get what we want out of God. You know, all the formulas that exist under the sun. 
okay? And all the reasons that it would explain why this hasn't happened when you wanted it to or the way you wanted it to happen, you know? And irrespective of the particular theory, the bottom line is always the same. Uh, the outcome, or the lack of the outcome in this case, has something to do with you, you know? You haven't got enough faith, you haven't believed enough, you haven't prayed enough, you haven't fasted enough, you haven't done enough praise aerobics this week. You know, like any number of things. And it always comes down to something on, something on our end. You know, we're not holy enough. Whatever it is, there's something on our end that is holding back this particular thing. And God is sitting in heaven going, well, I can't release that thing to you because you haven't actually lived up to the mark. And this morning I want us to understand that there is no formula, no formula whatsoever about this, okay? because if there was, if it came down to something like the idea that God just loves some people more than he loves others, then this story blows that out of the water because, spoiler alert, Lazarus dies, all right? So if, if God only answers prayers or gives preferential treatment to people, this story doesn't hold up. Lazarus dies and that's not what anyone wanted. It doesn't mean there isn't a reason for this happening. There is a reason. Jesus makes that quite clear soon. But the reason isn't any of the number of things that we usually go to that have to do with our performance in some way. It's ascribed to some other purpose, something that we don't necessarily have to get or understand at this point, but that's the reason that Jesus gives. It's nothing to do with proximity and performance. We go on to verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, "'This sickness will not end in death.'" No, it's for God's glory that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So here's this reason it isn't going to play out like they were hoping, although they didn't know that yet. Jesus explains, this isn't, you know, this is not going to end in, they're not sure what that, that means. They're going to get better, but it just means something else by it. This is, he introduces this whole other category that, God's going to let this thing run out so I can actually show you something you've never seen before. But notice how when Jesus gives a reason, John feels the need to follow up very, very quickly with an editorial comment, right? Um, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Again. So it's almost like, please don't think this has anything to do with God not caring about these people. They're not going to get the outcome that they want in the time that they want, but it's not because Jesus doesn't love them. The question on every mind, everybody's mind in those days, and I guess the question on everybody's mind these days too, is when something doesn't happen, it's like, why? Why? Why, why is this happening? Why is this happening and why isn't this being solved? In those days, um, their, their worldview it was very well entrenched that, you know, if someone was sick, it was a sin issue. You see that come through in Jesus' um, other parables and stories of Jesus. Um, when people, Jesus comes across sick people, one of the first questions on people's mind uh, out, of, out of their mouth is, well, who sinned? Who did the wrong thing that this guy is in this situation? Okay? So there must be a really simple, easy explanation for this. And I guess our worldview um, is, is, as I've said before, what did I do wrong? There's a problem here. So what is it? What have, I, what have I done wrong? But Jesus introduces this new category. And he said, it's not what you think it is. This is not going to play out the way you want it to play out in the time you want it to play out. But it's none of the reasons you would necessarily assume. There's this whole other reason this is happening. And that is that the glory of God might be revealed. In other words, I'm going to let this play out to a point that you get to see something about me and about God that you would not otherwise get to see if I was to do this in the way you want it to play out right now. Are you with me on that? Okay, so he introduces this whole new category. Verse 5. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there two more days. And then he said to disciples, let's go back to Judea. 
So Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. Rather than get up and run there and go and heal his mate, okay, he stays put two more days. He could intervene at this stage. This story could have a very different trajectory, but he stays where he is and doesn't do anything. Has God ever taken time to answer your prayers? Because, you know, we put it beyond dispute that God is able to do anything, yes? All right, he is, he's able to. So the issue is never, can God do this? The issue is, why doesn't God do this? And why doesn't he do it like now? Because, you know what, there's, something in, there's another story of Jesus where they're telling him to kind of reveal himself. And he says, no, it's not the right time. Any time is right for you. And I think, yeah, when it comes to my answered prayer, any time is right for me. And that time is now. Yeah? I want my prayers answered now. I want them done in the time frame that makes me be able to go back to sleep and have peace at night. Yes? All right? But even though God can do it, sometimes he chooses not to do it. And there is a reason for that, which, again, we'll get to see in a minute. 8 to 12, let's go through this. But Rabbi, they said... A short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and you are going back. In other words, it's not a good idea to go back to the place where people tried to kill you. Okay? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. In other words, what are you talking about? We just said to you, don't go back to Judea because people tried to kill you. It's a bad idea. And then you say that, this kind of non-secretary again. Have you ever noticed that about Jesus sometimes? People say things and then he says something and you go, what's that got anything to do with what I just said? What, what on earth has that got to do with anything? But in fact, it does have something to do with what he's just saying. Jesus is talking about opportunity. They're saying, don't go back. And he's saying, hey, I'm still here. We've still got opportunities to do things. We've still got opportunities to do good. There's coming a time where we won't have those opportunities. That time is not now. So I'm going to take this opportunity and I'm going to go and do what I need to do. Okay? Now, sometimes, like Jesus uh, in the case of Judea, all right, we go somewhere with our hopes and our dreams, like we, we aim for something, we go for something, and it doesn't turn out. It doesn't turn out. We get burned. It fails. People try to kill us or whatever. Who's ever reluctant to revisit that place again? Yeah? I can think of multiple times where I've gone places and thought, this is the thing, I'm going to go for this, I'm going to go for this. It doesn't turn out. And then someone might suggest that we revisit that thing and I'm like, no, that's a bad idea. We nearly got killed there last time. Okay? It didn't turn out. It didn't work. Why on earth would we want to do that? Well, the short answer to that is because we still have the opportunity to do things. We still have the opportunity to do things. Okay? The fat lady has not sung. All right? It's not over. All right? We have opportunities to do things, so why not go back and do it. As coincidence would have it, while I was looking at this, I was actually um, reading the story uh, of Elon Musk, you know, he of Tesla fame. And um, it was just talking about how he got into the space thing. And basically, you know, he's, he's obviously a really smart guy, but he worked out that, you know, we pay too much to go into space. Who'd have thought? Um, you know, I don't know how much you pay, but it's... it's anyway, Elon Musk is convinced that it's, it's far too an expensive venture and it can be done far more cheaply. Not sure how I feel about that. Um, you know, it's like when you, you, know, you opt for the cheap option for some equipment and it catches fire. So you, you th I'm thinking to myself, I'm not sure I'm convinced by the... the but he tries it. So he, he 
builds a rocket and he launches it and it crashes. So he builds another rocket, he launches that, it crashes. He builds another rocket, he launches it, it crashes, falls down and falls into the swamp. He builds a fourth rocket and it succeeds, right? And apparently this is the story of this guy's life. And what I had to admire about him um, and what I, my takeaway from that is as hard as it is to revisit the places of your failures or your disappointments, um, sometimes it's really necessary that we do that. Because sometimes we just move on too, uh, too easily and too early. Just because something hasn't worked doesn't mean it was wrong. It could be a timing issue. It could be that we had the wrong model or the wrong idea. It could mean that we were forcing something um, to, to happen in a way that it was never going to happen. But it doesn't mean that just because we've gone somewhere once with something and that door has been shut, that it's going to be shut forever. Hope tells us that if we really feel strongly about something, we should not give up on something until it's abundantly clear that that thing is never... I think my microphone is... No, it's still going. Okay, good. Um, and so sometimes we need to revisit where we've been burned. Sometimes we need to go back to our Judea, those places where people have tried to kill us. And that's what hope does. It tells us that, yeah, the first time it wasn't very successful, but guess what? Go back and have another crack, and you never know what, what actually happened. So let's go on to verse 11. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I love how he just has to like, okay, I'll just, I won't hint at this anymore. I won't use euphemisms. Lazarus is dead, right? He's dead. He's gone. And for your sake, and I don't know how they would have told I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as, known as Didymus, uh, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that me, we may die with him. I love Thomas. Uh, he's my favourite because not only does he doubt, he's like, let's just go and die. Like, <laughs> let's just, we're all going to die. Let's just go and get it over and done with. And I'm like, I love your realism, Thomas, you know. Hope does not abound in Thomas, but uh, he's, he's like... It's, it's cool, we kind of signed up for this, so let's just cut to the chase. He's like Eeyore, you know, let's just go and do this. All right, verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That's something that keeps coming up in this story. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. Four days, like I said, it comes up a number of times in this story. Four days. He's been dead four days. He's been in the tomb for four days. Why? Because actually there was kind of a belief around at the time that when someone died, their spirit hovered around their, their body for three days. But once the body really started to change due to decomposition um, around about the fourth day, that's when the spirit decided that it was, we reached the point of no return and they, their spirit would completely depart. So what's, what's going on here is, you know, Jesus, he's already been dead four days. He's actually gone beyond the point of no return. Okay, he's gone beyond the point of no return. I was thinking again about this in terms of us and hope and the things that we want to see. And I think we've all got our plausibility points, haven't we? That point at which something 
is no longer plausible or possible because it's gone too long. You know what I'm talking about? So up to a certain point, God might have the circumstances in his favour. You know, the wind at his back. And, and there's a possibility that could happen. But then we reach a point where there are, there's no circumstantial reason for believing that it could be anything other than over. And that's our plausibility point. It is no longer possible or plausible that God could actually turn this situation around. We've all got our plausibility points when it comes to things. We all get to points where we go, it's too late. That's finished. That's over. That's never going to happen again. You know what I'm talking about with that? Does anyone ever, everyone know what I'm talking about there? Does everyone know where their plausibility points are in things? I do. Like about a second into it, usually. You know, um, sometimes they're not very long at all. But this is the thing. There is a cutoff point in our brains and in our minds that won't allow us to hope beyond a certain point. And the whole point about this story is God is not bound by those plausibility points. God is not bound by the circumstances being in his favour. God is not bound by whether or not we think he can turn something around because we think it's been too late. God is beyond that. This God in whose nature and character we trust, okay, when we say it's for whom there is nothing that is impossible, then nothing is impossible even beyond that point. I'd like to drill down in that more, but we haven't got time now. Okay. 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Why did Mary stay at home? Because she's angry. Okay. Now, this is the same Mary that sat at the feet of Jesus while Martha busied herself around, yeah? Mary couldn't get enough of Jesus at one point. But this time she hears that Jesus is coming and Martha goes out to greet Jesus. Mary doesn't even make the effort. She's annoyed. She's hurt. She's angry. Her brother is dead and she knows just as well as anyone else that Jesus could have stopped that from happening. They knew Jesus could heal people. They knew Jesus wasn't that far away. And yet he didn't turn up and now her brother is dead. It's not easy, is it, when we know that God could do a thing but just doesn't do it and then we still don't know why? Has anyone ever been angry at God? I think it's really healthy that we give voice to that type of thing. You know, again, read the Bible and just have a look at the Psalms and stuff, for example, where you've got people really wrestling with these issues about why you, can, who can do something about something, hasn't done something about it and continues not to do something about it. And I think there's a real healthy thing in that. And I think Mary's probably being quite healthy in this, going, I don't care that Jesus is coming, I'm not going to go and talk to him. I'm re- you know, I mean, I'm speculating. We've got a time machine, we could go and find out, but we don't. Um, so, but I, this is my read on it. So in verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. He, he knows, right? He knows. But they're not going to let him forget this. If you'd been here... He wouldn't have died, all right? But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So what's going on here is that Martha is like, she's hurt, she's confused too. If you'd have been here, my brother would not have died, but I know 
I know God still hears you and you can do all sorts of things. And Jesus asked her this question, you know, uh, tells her, your brother's going to rise again, Martha. And she said, yeah, I know, you know, at the end of time, on that day, the general resurrection. So she kind of has this general hope and this general belief that, yeah, okay, I know he's not gone forever, ever, that he is going to come back. But Jesus is trying to pull her right back into the here and now in this, okay? Not a hope that's in this one day something will happen, this general resurrection, but a hope that that in the here and now something could actually happen. So she knows he's going to rise again in the long term, but there's no expectation on her part that that resurrection could occur in the here and now. And that's why Jesus drills down into this a little bit with her. He says in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she says in verse 27, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So he asked her this very specific question. Do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me will never die, but will live? And she says, yep, I know you're the Messiah. That's not what I asked you. I know it's connected, but it's not what I asked you. I asked you, do you believe that I am the resurrection? So he asked her a question that in, in the best of circumstances, when the sun is shining and the planets are aligned and life is all that it should be, we would have no hesitation in saying, yep, I absolutely believe you are who you say you are and you can do what you can do. I absolutely... If Lazarus had been standing there, she would have gone, absolutely, I believe you're the resurrection and the life. But she deflects it and goes, I know you're the Messiah. It's different when we have to front up to the truths we claim to believe when everything's going well, when our life is kind of wrapped in pain and grief and loss and disappointment. Yeah? We often have a very different perspective on that then. It's just not as simple to be able to go, yeah, you are who you say you are. Because at this point in time, at this moment in time, hmm, I'm not entirely convinced that's true. But I'll give you the messiahship thing. I'll I'll, I'll still give you the Messiahship. You're still God. You're still good. You're still powerful. Do I believe you can turn this around? No. It's already been four days. It's already too late. But Jesus is wanting her to go. He keeps pushing her on this. And he's asking her to move, asking her to drill down into this particular question. And he's saying, I know you believe in a general resurrection, but do you believe in me as the resurrection? Again, we talked about this once before. The resurrection isn't a doctrinal belief. It's not an event. It's a person. It's Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's saying, I'm not asking you to believe in something in in some time to come. I'm asking you to believe in me who's standing right here in front of you right now. And whether or not you think that resurrection is in me and that I am the life and that I can do something about this here and now. We're not asked to put our hope into a set of beliefs. Our hope is in a person. It is in Jesus. Our hope is in the one who has proved that he can come back from the point of no return. Yes? Okay? Our hope is in a person. It is not in an event. It is not in a set of beliefs. It is in a person. So as he goes through, he pretty much has the same conversation with Mary, which we won't go over again. And it says in verse 34, Where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. In verse 35, it simply says, Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible, perhaps the most profound verse in the Bible. Because so what I think we can do sometimes when we, we're thinking about it, uh, the whys and wherefores of, of how this is all working, sometimes we get this idea of God that he is kind of dispassionately making these decisions. 
that he is disconnected from us and that, you know, like he's got a world to run, right? And he's got big decisions to make and he can't be getting head up on how that decision is going to make you feel because he's got bigger plans. Do you understand what I'm talking about? You know, it's like God is, it's, it's almost like God is making these decisions without any reference to how they might affect us and how we might feel about it. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. And I think we need to remember there's nothing inhuman about God. Um, I know that sounds a weird thing to say, but there is nothing inhuman about God. The, the feelings that I have as a parent at times, when I have to either you know, refrain from doing something or do something that I know is going to upset my kids, but it's in their best interest, I still feel that pain. You know what I'm talking about? I don't like to see them upset. I don't like to see, you know, in fact, I would do anything to not do that, but sometimes that's not the best thing to do. So if it's true for me, why would it not be true for God? And, you know, throughout this story, you've got Jesus who's made these deliberate decisions to allow Lazarus to die, weeping. That seems a little bit disingenuous. But it's not. Because for him, even though he knows the outcome, that Lazarus is going to walk out of that tomb. Sorry if you didn't know how this ended. Right, Lazarus is going to walk out of this tomb, all right? You're not going to pay your money to go and see the movie now, are you? Right? Um, he still genuinely cries because death sucks. It robs us. It robs people. It hurts. And God is not immune to that. He is not impervious to our pain. You know, it's really important that we understand that when we're looking at this through the lens of hope. That this decision, that, that we, this thing that we want God to have done and done in a certain amount of time, right? That he's just like, well, that's just too bad. That's just the way it is. That he actually cares about you in this process and he cares about the angst that you're going through and he cares about it. And yeah, he could click his fingers, if that's how God does things, and solve the problem. But there's a reason why this hasn't happened yet. A reason we don't quite understand yet. A reason that we may never understand. But he still cares. And we need to be able to trust in the nature of God. Okay? We need to be able to trust in the nature of God to have hope. You know, we need to be able to trust in his good character. Because that who is looking after us in all of this. Then the Jews said to him, see how he loved him. In verse 37. But some of them said, could, he, uh, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? There are always two types of people around you when you go through grief and disappointment. There are those who are able to know and to sense your profound loss or disappointment and angst and grief and just sit there with you in it. And they can see what this is doing to you. And then you've got these really helpful people. These people that feel the need to make a point and suggest that maybe things could have been different if. You know what I'm talking about? If you haven't had the pleasure of that, just go to most churches. There's usually a number of people around to help you with that. But here's my counsel, and it's for free, okay? When you're going through a period of loss or disappointment or dashed hopes, choose your company wisely. Seriously. If you want to maintain hope, choose your company wisely. The people around you will affect you more than you will ever know. Remember the story of Job? He loses his house his livestock, his kids. He loses everything. 
And then Job's friends come over <laughs> to help him understand why it's all happening. And essentially it's, you must suck, it. You must suck Job. You must have done something terrible for this to happen to you. And it goes on and on and on and on. And they're called Job's comforters. I can do without that sort of comfort in my life, just, for, just in case you need to know. But they pick it apart until God finally loses his patient, patience and says, who is this that darkens my counsel without wisdom? I've listened to this rubbish enough and then launches into them. Okay. The truth is, guys, you know, when, when we're going through a period of dashed hopes and we're really struggling to maintain hope and we want to get to the point where we can again have hope and believe and persist and keep going and not just give up and just collapse into a heap, we have to be careful about who is around us at the time. We have to choose our company wisely and we want people who aren't going to use the opportunity to try and dissect everything that's going on. We want people around us who can really empathise with the pain that we're going through and just gently and quietly remind us that God is still in this and that he still cares and that he can still do anything, that nothing is impossible for him and not to give up. They're the people that we need in our lives. So what's our posture going to be when we believe for something and it doesn't happen, when we put into something and it fails, when we pray for people and we don't get the results? What's our posture going to be? I think it needs to be one of perpetual hope that acknowledges our grief, it acknowledges our sadness, it's able to sit in the tension of, of, of being able to, to wear all, that, all the sadness that comes with things that aren't working out for us the way we would hope or want them to, but at one and the same time, not be resigned to the idea that this is it, but to still have some type of hope in us that says, I know it looks really bleak right now, but it's not over because we serve a God that doesn't have a cut-off point. We serve a God for whom nothing is impossible. That's the sort of posture we need to have. I was reading through, I'm going to finish with this now, I was reading through Lamentations the other day because I needed to cheer myself up. <laughs> and if you haven't read Lamentations, it is what it, it sounds like. It's a lament. Who knows what a lament is? It's a sad, sad, sad song. Okay? And it's, it's ascribed to like Jeremiah and it's written around the time of the fall of Jerusalem where Babylon, the Babylonians are laying siege to Jerusalem and, and so what they do is they lay siege to the city and nothing can get in and nothing can get out and it becomes this incredibly dark time for the people of Jerusalem. Um, there's no food, there's no water, people are cannibalising one another. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible time. And Jeremiah is watching all of this He's not only watching the horror that's unfolding before him, he's looking at the end uh, of the people of God, the people that he has been saying, you have a special place in God's plans and you are a special people and, it's, and God's never going to forsake you. And they just look 100% forsaken. Um, and he's been a part as a prophet of telling that story. And he says in verse 19, I'll just read this, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning, great is your faithfulness. Can I just say, at the time, there was no change in his circumstances. It didn't get better every morning. There was not an increase in things getting better. 
But he maintains that his compassions never fail and they're new every morning and the faithfulness of God was to be found in that horrific situation every single day, fresh. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. And here's what I want us to get. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the, for the salvation of the Lord. And I guess all I want to say in this this morning is, you know, we go through this stuff periodically. We go through it individually. We go through it collectively. But we have a choice in all of it. We have a choice as to the posture that we're going to adopt. Whether it's one of fatalism and, yeah, let's run up the flag now, or whether it's one of let's put our hope in God. Because even though right now the circumstances haven't changed, his faithfulness is still here because we're still here. We're still here. I'm still here. The new every morning. And if I wait patiently, God will ultimately bring some type of deliverance. Amen? That's what we, that is what hope looks like. Okay? It doesn't deny our current reality. It just insists that God is not limited or confined to it. Amen?